Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. They had the honor of connecting with Dr. Kelly Kasperson. She is a urologist. She is committed to empowering women to live their best love lives. She is a TEDx speaker, and she is the author of You Are Not Broken podcast, as well as book. Today, we dove deep into the influence of Hollywood on the lack of education regarding bad and good sex, the role of parenting why sex ed isn't taught in schools, the impact on the paradigm around female physiology, the lack of education about sexuality in med school and in her education, the role of hormones, hormone replacement therapy, why boomers should be pissed, oral contraceptives versus HRT, bridging behavior in the bedroom to lead to better sex, changes to the genitourinary system with age, and so much more. This has absolutely been one of my favorite recent podcasts. Dr. Kasperson is an incredible resource. She also has an incredible podcast as well as recent TEDx talk. Talking about how do we actually define good sex versus bad sex? Because in the book, you do such a beautiful job of talking about some of the the research that's been done and the psychology around this. And I think for a lot of people, they're on autopilot. They don't even recognize that what is their norm doesn't have to be that way. And so as a clinician, having the opportunity to speak to you know men and women, what do you think actually defines good sex or bad sex? Like, what is it? Is it heavily influenced, I would imagine, by societal norms, by what people see in the movies, by what they see if they engage in watching pornographic material or just in conversations with their peers when they're younger? What are some of the things that influence our perceptions around good versus bad sex? Yeah, uh, so much to unpack there. Like, it's awesome that you're providing a platform where where people can even think about this, right? Because I think Hollywood is, you know, status quo. We've been doing it for how many decades now of like, boy meets girl, boy pursues girl, girls blindlessly in love and just swept away and then an instant simultaneous orgasm in like one minute right? Like rinse and repeat, <laughs> right? It's like, it's it's just what it is. And so the state of sex education in our country, in the world is so bad. We basically got like a don't get pregnant, don't get a disease plan, right? Which is, that's nice if we were lucky enough to even get that. But our education is so bad. We have to look to Hollywood and top 10 country hits and now more and more porn, right? Like we're looking for education. We're just looking for it in the wrong places or we're assuming that's an education when that's really an entertainment, right? That's a product that we consume and purchase and it's not an education and it's a crappy education, right? And I think going back to like what's good and bad, what's bad tends to kind of have some universal themes, right? Like pain is not good. Coercion is not good. You know, all we kind of clear of what bad is, Good is very individualized, I think. It's very unique, right? And really that's for an individual to seek out of like, what does good mean to you, right? Does it mean it's 
the same every time? Does it have to be different all the time? Does it have to feel a certain way? Do you have to be connected a certain way? Is there a little bit of surprise involved in it? For like, good, I think, is not a universal. And I think trying to live up to what Hollywood looks like as that's what's good or that's what's, you know, to be obtained only leads to disappointment. No, I couldn't agree more. And it it was interesting. I was having a conversation with my husband last night with the teenagers were upstairs because I'm at this stage of life where my teenagers think any discussions around sexuality, anything related to a lot of what I talk about on the podcast, everything is embarrassing. You know, I'm I embarrass them endlessly and constantly. And that just becomes good job, mom. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm just doing my job. But I was saying to my husband, I was like, when I was reading your book, 17 states mandate sex ed, 17 out of 50. And if most kids aren't having a discussion with their parents, and they're not getting any even perfunctory information at school, it means they're very likely not getting good information or even factual information. And you know, leading to these concerns, and and I don't want to unpack this in a way that we're down a rabbit hole talking about Roe v. Wade, but helping people understand that if we're going to have children, part of what I think is so important is to have conversations with our children starting at a young age about their bodies and about uh, the changes that will be coming. I have all boys. And so, you know, we've been having those all the way along. and, And now it's talking about, you know, every time you have sex, you have the opportunity to either contract a sexually transmitted disease or get someone pregnant. So you have to be thinking about these things. Of course, you know, they're still maturing and and I don't think either of them are sexually active. But the point of why I'm sharing this is we have to be having these conversations with our kids because if we're not having it, someone else will. And it very likely may not be someone who's giving them good information that they can utilize to in order to make good decisions. And when I say good decisions, if the average age for marriage right now, I think according to the knot was 31 for women and 33 for men, they're very likely going to have premarital sex. And so yep. we have to be having these conversations. We can't dig our heads in the sand and pretend that that this is an inevitability. Yeah. To me, I'm like, congratulations, parents. It's on you because <laughs> it's coming in crappy otherwise. And our school systems are not stepping up. I think it's fraught with how to do it, how to say this, should you say that? So I think I don't see that getting better anytime soon. And, you know, so many, it's interesting, you know, to the gendering of this, but so many people are like, oh, well, girls didn't get an education. So they rely on the guy to like, tell them what sex is. And it's like, they didn't get an education either to assume that men have more education than us and know how to pleasure us more or know how to protect us more or to have our interests better than we do, right? It's like we're giving way too much power to a group that also didn't get any education. You know, we, I have a university in my town and the health you know, clinic has these college-age guys come in feeling horrifically broken because their bodies don't perform like what they're watching on porn because that's where they're getting their education from. And and it's just a you know dramatic story to be like nobody's getting a good education, so we mostly just feel broken about it. Yeah, and I think you know the title of your book is and your podcast is so telling because I would imagine that most people, if they are looking at either Hollywood or social media or they're looking at pornography, no one can live up to that ideal. Like that's not realistic in terms of just the physiology. You know, maybe a male can have an orgasm faster than a female but you know women it, it's not just necessarily as you say piv sex you know penis in the vagina and i said to my husband have you ever heard that and he's like piv what does that mean <laughs> 
So we had this whole conversation. I was like, this terminology that I think is so descriptive, but also very appropriate, because if we're not helping young adults and children like learn about their bodies as they're getting older, we want to have at least some accurate control over information that they're getting so that they then feel comfortable about having conversations with their partner, whomever that might be, and with their physicians or their nurse practitioners so that they can advocate for themselves. Because unfortunately, I think most people figure this out, like stumbling and fumbling along until maybe they figure out what was it? The Seinfeld episode, like I'm really dating myself, Seinfeld, you know, the master of your domain. And it was all the characters figuring out like how quickly or how frequently they could figure out what works for them. But it's like, even the concept of talking around masturbation is so, you know, it's so stigmatized and yet it shouldn't be. It's just a very natural reflection of human sexuality, but also something that most people aren't comfortable talking about. Maybe they are in a physician patient relationship, but certainly not amongst friends. I mean, I can't think ever of having a conversation with a girlfriend about surrounding these kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, the good news is I think it's getting better. But again, it might be the circles I hang out in. (laughs) I went out to dinner. Like people are comfortable. Like I have a podcast about sex, right? But like and two girlfriends were talking about like their travel vibrator and this one's just for their suitcase. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, we're having this conversation now, right? So I do think it's getting better. I do like that we've kind of labeled PIV sex and given it a name because when you do that, then you realize, oh, Maybe there are other things that are PIV sex that could equally be as valid of something to do, right? Or something to have. And it's like when we just defaulted penis and vagina as what sex is, it's like, no, 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 it's one card. That's one card. And you can do all these other things really kind of can open things up for people. Well, and it's interesting. Friends of mine that are educators that are dealing with middle school or high school students have talked about how in certain cultures, if you don't have PIV, then you're still a virgin. That the thought process is that's the holy grail. And if you haven't done PIV, then you haven't had, then you're still a virgin. And so when they shared this with me, I was like, really? I was like, that's so interesting how that's, you know, in the hierarchy of sexual activity, PIV is considered to be, you know, that is what determines whether or not you are still a virgin, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, I put this in my book too. And like, I hadn't questioned this until I started, you know, down just studying what I have of like, how can putting something in your vagina change who you are as a person? How can it change your, a label? Why is that a label? Why did that become invented? Right. And like just starting to question the whole label of what a virgin is and how it can be changed by somebody else putting something in your body is like blew my mind. Wasn't something that I was, I ever like questioned growing up. And Lord knows I'm going to be talking to my daughters about it. Like you're saying somebody can change your inherent worth by putting something in your vagina. Like that's goofy. Like it's goofy when you break it down. You're like the amount of control put over women and shame. And when you get down to it, you're like, you put a body part in a body part. Why are we doing that to people? And why don't men have a name change when they put their body part in something? Right? Like, why is that not as equally shameful? It's the same activity. And so it's really, you know, and I think that's the power of being a urologist versus like somebody who just cares for women is like, I care for the men too, right? Why aren't we shaming them equally? Not that we should shame anybody, right? But it's not fair once you start looking at that. Well, and it's interesting. I'm in a unique time in in my children's development where they are both in high school and I'm very fortunate they still share a lot. And we have moments where they will 
share or talk about circumstances. And there was a unfortunate situation at school. There was a, a young woman who, and I'm going to just say that it involved several men and herself consensually. And now many people in school know about it. And so my kids were talking around it and talking to my husband and I about it. And I said, well, why is the woman being shamed when it, they all seemingly from what you've shared with me, this was all willing participants. And they just said, oh, it's different for girls. And I said, but does that make sense? If they were all consensual and all chose to do these things together, does that make sense? I said, let's kind of unpack that. Because one thing that I have done with having teenagers is impressing upon them that they have a tremendous need to be very clear, whatever they are doing with a partner, that they have complete consent and being very you know, direct and open about that. But I thought it was very telling that even for these individuals who are teenagers, that there's this hierarchy still, this very kind of paternalistic, well, guys can get away with anything. But, you know, if you do that as a woman, then, you know, there's certain terms that they use, which I don't like, not them, but I'm just saying like as a society that they will use to describe women who either are choosing to be sexually active or have multiple partners and they're labeling them. And I just, is that fair though? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not and so kind all. of challenging them. Mm-hmm. And dude, your boys are so lucky to have you because they're like, <laughs> they they're not feel even that if way. they're like, whatever mom, like they just soaking <laughs> in, right? Like to be able to see, and you know, there was a sex educator who was saying like using Hollywood films as a backdrop of like, isn't it interesting how she you know, needs to be this certain way to get his interest. Isn't it so in- And just like using it as a conversation to call out the inequalities in our society. There's a very famous, you know, superstar who apparently has just is with a boyfriend and he was married or something. And that she was getting all this crap for like breaking up his marriage. And I'm like, where's the crap for him? He was the one who was in a relationship and like nobody was picking on the dude. And it's like, dude, it's, left and right inequality for sex all over the place. And then we wonder why we're in this predicament, right? It's like, because we need to start questioning equality in people's behavior. Absolutely. And and it's interesting. Like I was trying to keep the door open as they were, because it it is now turned into three days worth of conversation because they're still talking about it. And I just said, first of all, language is important. And that's something that I think how you choose to frame or reframe what has happened and understanding that both this young woman and these young men, they all chose to engage in this this behavior together. But let's leave the judgment out of it because I think that's so important. And I don't know if it's because I'm the only female in my house. I almost feel like I have to really make sure they like reaffirm for them that it's important to understand like if you're going to judge her, then you should be judging them as well. And no one should be judged. Right. At some point, we've all been sold a big, fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you, it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. 
It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. So kind of shifting gears, because I think that you bring up so many good points in your book. And I can't think of a time that ever in my entire medical education, we ever talked about the clitoris other than in a passing description, like checkbox, here's a clitoris. Why do you think physicians, NPs, nurses, PAs aren't taught enough about female physiology in terms of sexuality? Because I can't think of any book. And I actually pulled out my old book 
from undergrad and then one from grad school. And there's a little description, like with a line, like here's the clitoris. And there was like very little information, maybe a sentence or two, but yet it's such an important organ and it's completely kind of negated in the conversation or even in the educational exchange. Yeah. Cause it's not necessary to produce a baby. I am not an expert on everything, but I read a lot. And that's one theory that's thrown out as to why it's not important in the medical paradigm. Is that because it's not actually a couple hundred years ago, we thought that you had to have like simultaneous orgasm in order to actually produce a pregnancy. Turns out you don't. You only need the penis to ejaculate to get the sperm out, right? And so the clitoris is not important in reproduction per se. Now, what you can argue be like, yeah, well, if that person doesn't want to be involved in the sexual activity, it's actually quite important. And isn't it interesting that it's put on the outside that perhaps her pleasure is so important it must have to happen first before she lets anybody in? We don't know. Like God and evolution isn't sharing the design, right? Pigs have clitorises in their vagina. That's interesting. So like, you know, all animals are different. But the, (laughs) the, the answer I've read as to why the medical paradigm doesn't talk about it is because it's not a reproductive necessity. But yet it's something that is so, you know, categorically important for those that are sexually active, that it's, you know, this pleasure aspect of our sexuality that is not talked about. I mean, I think as a female, you know, taking ownership of our bodies is so important, but yet I grew up in a household where, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic and you know, my parents, when I went off to college, honest to God, both my parents who were divorced said the same thing. Whatever you do, don't get pregnant. That was my, their resounding concern was do not get pregnant. Nothing else. No other words of wisdom, but don't get pregnant when you're in college. And I just recall thinking like, when my kids are going off to college and I'll have one that will go off next year, what are the conversations that we're going to have? And it very likely will not be surrounding that. It'll be something, you know, larger kind of life lesson. But when we're talking about this lack of information in textbooks, this lack of emphasis. I think you mentioned in the book, you had one classroom session devoted to talking about sexuality, not even about the clitoris, but just about sexuality in general. Do you think it's the discomfort within our culture? Because I look at other cultures, you know, friends of mine that grew up in Europe or other parts of the country where they're much more I guess, comfortable having these discussions, you know, they're, they're done at younger ages, there's less shame around sexual habits. You know, I try to think about it from a bigger perspective, like what contributes to us as a society being really uncomfortable talking about our sexuality, like we can, like as a culture, we can create, you know, all these Hollywood romances and all this on screen romance, put in air quotes and pornography, which is a whole separate conversation. And you know, very explicit magazines and books and things like this, but yet we can't have the conversation. Like somehow that's a whole much harder discussion to be had. And what does that really say about us as a culture? I know it's this weird paradigm of a culture where sexuality is literally in your face, but not talked about. Like it's very weird <laughs> when you step back and look at it. You're like, how do we sell hamburgers? You remember that? like there was that Super Bowl <laughs> ad for whatever hamburger company with like this woman completely in a bikini, right? And it's like we sell cars and hamburgers and everything else with we use sex as a sales tactic, but we can't talk about it, let alone a female's pleasure, right? And in one of my big ahas was like. Viagra is one of the most recognized pharmaceuticals on the planet. Not many drugs are recognized by the shape and color of the pill. 
right, blockbuster drug for Pfizer when it came out. And it's like, who's taking care of the people who are supposed to be sleeping with the people we're all giving Viagra to? Let's assume 90% of the men taking Viagra are heterosexual. That's, who's taking care of all their partners who are supposed to like instantaneously want to now have sex with these people who maybe they have not been sexual with in a long time, right? And that was my big aha on like equality. Yeah. The other interesting thing with, I mean, there's so many, you could write like a multiple books on inequality of like, I was talking to a friend about hormone replacement therapy. And in women right now, hormone replacement therapy is only if your, your symptoms are severe and bothersome enough. And sex is never <laughs> talked about as a reason to be on hormone replacement therapy. What are two reasons that men can be on testosterone for symptoms? Low libido and erectile dysfunction, right? So even when we talk about hormone replacement therapy, like sexual wellness is very important in talking about a reason for a man to go on hormones. It's hardly mentioned at all for, you know, estrogen patches. Yeah. And so, yeah, and I think the inequality is everywhere. Yeah. And it's interesting. So I was a new nurse practitioner in 2001. And so my whole background was in cardiology until I left. And I did that for 16 years, saw a lot of Viagra. And the Viagra kind of heyday was back in the early 2000s. And I recall that the male physicians would take all the samples. So it became this running joke. Like I would go to hand out a sample and I'm like, we have no sample. So I'd have to call my Pfizer rep. And he was like, I just dropped off samples a couple of days ago. And I said, this is what I think. I don't know, but this is what I think. I think the male physicians are trying it out at home. But what I do recall, and at that time I oversaw a heart failure clinic, I had this wonderful patient and I'll never forget this. I gave him with permission, talked it over with his cardiologist. I was like, I'm going to give him a little bit of Viagra. He was so happy. He went home. Two days later, I get a call from our ER department. I need you to come down and see one of your patient's spouses. She wants to talk to you. So they hadn't had sex in 15 years. And he took his Viagra, went home, was so excited, had been married to his wife for forever. And she was this little itty bitty thing, osteoporotic. Well, I guess he was so overcome by passion that he, I guess, during sex, fractured two ribs. And she was so mad at me that when I walked in the room, the ER doc was like, go talk to her. I mean, she yelled and screamed at me and she said, I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this. She was like, you need to have a conversation with the spouse's significant others before you prescribe these medications. And that stayed with me forever because very much in her mind, she was like, lights are out. I'm done. I'm in my seventies. I've done my duty. We have a bunch of grandkids and kids. I'm done. I didn't want to do that. I mean, I will never forget that. And that was, you know, at the right at the heyday of when Viagra was really starting to take off. And to your point, you know, we're not thinking about, you know, what's happening to those partners, but to the point about we're always thinking about the men. Well, even at that time, thinking about the men and there weren't options for women. If women had low libido, it was like, oh, it's in your head. Not realizing yeah. that the constellation of hormonal fluctuations that are happening for women and perimenopause and menopause can play a huge role. And I know that you're very outspoken, for which I'm grateful, talking about you know, why aren't we prescribing more intravaginal estrogen? Like, Why are women having to deal with the constellations used to be called, uh, you know, I think you mentioned senile, um, the senile vagina, senile vagina. I was like, that is the saddest thing ever. <laughs> senile so vaginas, you know, the yeah. genitourinary symptoms of menopause, which is equally, equally unpleasant to hear, but understanding that, uh, if you're not taking care of your vagina, there are a lot of things that will happen that will make sex 
nearly impossible unless you are working with someone that is helping you find a solution to the problems you're experiencing. Yeah. I mean, I love pelvic hormones. They're the best. they're over the counter in multiple countries, which I just love saying because it's like, that's how you just go into a grocery store and buy some vaginal estrogen. It's that safe, right? Which is a whole nother conversation. But um, yeah, the problem is women were taught over the last 20 years that something your body naturally makes kills you, which is a hell of a way to you know oppress people and, and get them scared, right? Like, what if we told men that testosterone causes their prostate cancer? They'd all stop we, it immediately. Yeah. and uh, But it doesn't cause their prostate cancer. And so we don't call it that. Right. And I think the big the big one right now is, you know, women are like, I'm estrogen positive breast cancer. That does not mean estrogen caused your breast cancer. It just means your breast cancer has some estrogen receptors on it. Right. And like really mislabeling that to make people so afraid of estrogen. And then, you know, again, lack of education. Right. Like menopause is not just a hot flash. Some people don't have hot flashes, but they're going to yes. have horrific vaginal dryness, recurrent urinary tract infections, overactive bladder, pain with sex, decreased arousal, clitoral phimosis, you know, going into, you know, nobody ta was taught anything about the clitoris. I see clitoral phimosis a lot in clinic because I do a lot of exams and I'm like, are orgasms, you know, trickier? Do they take longer? Are they more elusive? And they're like, yeah, why? I'm like, because your clitoris is covered up by your clitoral hood, you know? And so, and we don't talk about that stuff. So she's like, I just thought that, you know, and I'm like, no, you have like a skin condition, right? And so women are biologic beings, just like men are. It's not all in our heads, but mm -hmm. you know, erections were psychologic until Viagra came out. Yep. Well, and it, what yeah. I find fascinating is, and this used to make me so angry, Viagra would get covered by insurance but oral contraceptives were not. And I'm sure at that time, if people were still prescribing HRT, it probably wasn't covered. And I said, no, I don't know if this bothers you, but it bothers me. You know, something to help women decide when they want to have children and something that supports women in terms of hormonal fluctuations that are happening throughout perimenopause into menopause. It's a quality of life metric. If women spend 40% of their lifetime in menopause, why in the world would they want to have a lower quality of life? And that for me, having gone through this transition myself a little earlier than I expected, you know, I read your book with great interest because my mother's generation was all taken off of hormones after WHI came out. All of my aunts, I have five aunts, all of them were taken off of HRT. Something that I feel so passionate about is making sure women understand that they have options that they, if they're working with someone that still is fear-mongering, the hormones are going to cause cancer. There are many, many talented physicians and other healthcare practitioners that would love to be able to help you. That, that does not have to be your destiny. And that quality of life piece is huge. I mean, I, I talk to girlfriends all the time, some of which are not on HRT. They want to be on HRT and they're terrified of it. And I remind them, like, if you just understand the physiology of what changes in your vagina when you make that or as you're making that transition, as you were losing estrogen, you lose off the lactobacilli, you know, you, you have all these changes within the vagina. And for many of these, you know, younger, late forties, early fifties, they're like, Oh, this explains why I have overactive bladder, why I have chronic itching, why 
I've, I have like three urinary tract infections in a year and I've never experienced that. And I would say there are so many relatively easy fixes to these problems, but we still have this narrative that is so focused on making women fearful instead of educating them about their options. And, you know, to your point, hot flashes isn't just the only thing that happens. If people understood that menopause is kind of this de facto disease state, all the inflammation that's going on below the surface, like how many thin women I see that are like, oh, I don't need HRT. I'm going to do this naturally. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But understand what's going on below the surface because, and I'm talking more openly about this now, there was about a six month stretch where I was off of HRT because I was in between providers. And when we drew labs, and this is someone I have this strong cardiology background. I was like, I want all these, you know, these lipids done. I have this strong family history of elevated lipids. And we were doing the ApoB and LP little A and looking at particle size. And my functional medicine doc looked at me and said, Holy cow, I would never know. Looking at you, I'd never know. And I said, This is why we have to talk about this because without HRT, I am going to have so much inflammation and oxidative stress. And I'm going to end up having something happen that I don't want to have happen. So let's be proactive. And now that I'm back on things, I feel a thousand percent better. I actually said the other day, I'm dreaming again. I didn't realize I wasn't dreaming. I didn't realize I wasn't dreaming, you know, for this period of time that I was off of estrogen. And so for me, I love your message. And I love the fact that you're opening up these conversations because we have to continue helping women understand what their options are helping to find practitioners, they're going to be able to support what they desire to be the case. Maybe someone starts, maybe intravaginal estrogen is the gateway to HRT, you know, you know, and progesterone and if appropriate, you know, whether it's a patch or compounded estradiol or estrone, or depending on, you know, what the formulation might be, or even progesterone, all can be very, very helpful. But to think that you have to suffer in silence, I think those days are gone because I look at my mom's generation, osteoporotic, you know, they've got their lipids look terrible. None of them sleep. You know, they look fragile. And a lot of it is just a byproduct of the aging process without the benefit of these sex hormones. Yeah, absolutely. My podcast like two weeks ago that was the title was Boomer Should Be Pissed, right? Because I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, that you guys should be pissed. And like, you know, I, I get a lot of messages of like, we are, we're pissed. And, you know, I'm like, get more vocal then. Like, where is the like, oops, we messed up a generation. You know, my mom's got horrific vertigo. My grandma had macular degeneration. Otherwise, very healthy people, right? My great grandma, multiple osteoporotic fractures. And so that, you know, in, in my research, because as a physician, I have the power, like I can go behind the paywalls. I can interpret the journals, right? Like I've got all this skill that I can share with people. I'm like, oh my gosh, HRT decreases macular degeneration risk. I didn't know that. HRT decreases risk of vertigo. Have you ever had vertigo? It's horrific. Right. And, you know, I talked to, you know, the 50 year olds, which is like the perfect time to get on HRT is safest window. Right. And they're like, I don't know. I want to be all natural. And I'm like, what do you want to be doing when you're 72? Who do you want to be when you're 72? Think about that because it's like what you're doing now will pave that way. And if, listen, if men had a drug that decreased all cause mortality by 30%, decreased risk of cardiovascular disease and events by 30%, decreased risk of colon cancer by 30% between the ages of 50 and 60, they would all be on this drug. This drug is called estrogen, right? And no, not everybody can take it. And I see the, you know, the social media people of like, but the people who can't take it, they're having FOMO. And I'm like, 
some drugs have side effects and not everybody can take every drug. Like that's how it is. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk to the 97% of women where it's safe, right? It's like, we don't want to hurt one person's feelings. So we got to not talk about it to everybody. It just doesn't land well with me. Like, no, not everybody can, but about 97% of people can. So let's keep talking about it. And right now in, in America, about depends upon the data, about maybe 4% of people are on hormones. Is it that low? It's very low. It's very low. Wow. And before the WHI, estrogen was the fourth highest prescribed drug in the country. So we we took about 70% of people off their hormones. That's unbelievable. I mean, I remember, because in cardiology, you can imagine you see a cross-section of the population. And I remember all these women saying to me, Cynthia, I can't sleep anymore. And, you know, back then being, you know, baby nurse practitioner, I was like, oh, I'll write your prescription for Ambien. We'll get you to do Which more kills physical. people. Ambien yeah. kills people. Exactly. It's yeah. like, you think we, about, we know like, that now, right? But we, they, Ambien wasn't studied on women. Turns out no. women need a much lower dose of Ambien if they're going to use it. But why not just replace the hormone that make, helps you sleep? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to me because one thing that I've started seeing emerging and, you know, occasionally I'll do these AMA episodes on everyday wellness and- women will say, oh yeah, my GYN prescribed. And I'm like, that's not HRT. That's actually the pill. So I'm curious to know if you're seeing that say, and these are not people who need contraception. Let me be clear. They're in menopause and they're being prescribed oral contraceptives. And I'm like, well, I hate to say this, but that's not actually hormone replacement therapy. That's not actually helping you. Are you seeing that clinically? Are there women that are coming to you? Or are you hearing about this on the podcast from other practitioners, because for me, when I saw that, and it wasn't just one or two, it was more like 20 or 30 that were asking the same question. I was like, well, that's not actually HRT. Um, like, what is happening? I mean, I think it's a couple of things. I think, you know, gynecologists, primary care doctors in general are more comfortable with birth control because it's a much more common medication that they're comfortable with. Right. So I'm like, Okay, I can see that. Also, the risks of HRT have been grossly overblown. So we think that's way scarier. But Dude, there's risks to birth control pills, like known risks. And some will argue the risks are higher than with HRT, which is actually a, you know, a bioidentical and much lower dose. The experts really say around age 50, start switching off of your birth control pills and switch over to HRT. Yes, the younger people do need uh, pregnancy prevention. Right. So I always ask people, I'm like, what's your pregnancy prevention plan? Do you have one? Do you need one? Because you can get pregnant on mm -hmm. HRT because it's not birth control, right? It is a different chemical formula. But yeah, around age 50, because the risks of being on oral contraceptives do go up with age, you know, uh, clotting risk, stuff like that. So I think a lot of it's just the mis uneducation, miseducation of how to switch people from your birth control to your hormone replacement therapy. Yeah, Because no, it, it is individualized. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and it's interesting because my best friend from high school who never wanted to have kids, so she has been on oral contraceptives, called me one day recently and has debilitating vertigo. And I was explaining to her, I said, well, now you're 52, you're almost 53. It, it could very well be that it's, you know, you're in a low estrogen state because you're on the pill, you know, that might be exacerbating things. And so she brought that to her primary who said, oh, that's nonsense. <laughs> So I said, maybe it's time to think about, you know, doing some testing and maybe seeing a different provider. And maybe it's time to make that transition to your point going from 
the you know oral contraceptive pill maybe going over to some HRT I said because it sounds like from some of the things you're telling me your estrogen is probably pretty low and that might be exacerbating some of the symptoms you're experiencing which you don't need to experience today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense it combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition stress exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth 
mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Do you find that testosterone for women is gaining popularity? I mean, we've talked about it in the context around men, but this is something that I still feel like is kind of taboo. I don't think people understand that, you know, testosterone is very potent in our bodies, but it is, it is very important for us. And it's not just about libido. Unfortunately, people think about it just in that context. And there's more to testosterone than just there. It's insane. (laughs) <laughs> like, but I think it's, I mean, I, again, I like all of my answers are like, it's a lack of education, right? Of like, all bodies have testosterone. But what did I get taught in medical school? Testosterone is the male hormone, estrogen's the female hormone. And just to go off on like a man estrogen tangent for a second, there is this amazing study in the New England Journal of Medicine 10 years ago. They took healthy men. I don't know who signed up for this study because it was nuts. (laughs) They took healthy men. They blocked their testosterone. They then gave them back testosterone, but blocked the conversion to estrogen. So we got healthy men with, you know, pharmaceutical testosterone blocking the conversion to estrogen in their bodies. What happened? Their libido went down and their ability to have erections went down because the estrogen was blocked. That's fascinating. Boom. Mic drop. Men yeah. need estrogen for bones and sexual health. Women need testosterone because all bodies have all of these things. Because of our lack of education, we try to oversimplify it, right? But um, it is interesting. My brother was the one who pointed this out to me. Again, I go along like clueless until I get all these insights. My brother's like, why is the only acceptable reason for women to be on testosterone is to like sleep with a man? And I'm like, fascinating realization, brother. Thank you. But like really the only guidelines for testosterone is for hypoactive sexual desire disorder or low libido. Right. We say like that's the legit reason to give you testosterone is your sexual function, which is kind of insane, right? We know testosterone is really important for brain. I've got a woman on testosterone and she was like, we got her on her, you know, her regular air quote hormones. And then I'm like, you trust me, let's just try this. Let's just see how you go with this. And she's like, not only is my libido better, she's like, I'm thinking faster. I can math better. Like, she's like, my brain loves this stuff. And I just think we've done a huge disservice in not studying the role of testosterone in women bodies. In most, it depends upon where you are in your cycle, but women have more testosterone in their our bodies than estrogen, which is insane. I put the little conversion in my book of like picograms for deciliter converts to, right? So estrogen and testosterone are measured in different things. And my, for my menopausal women now, if they come in with a male partner, I point to the guy and I'm like, you know, he has more estrogen in his body than you do right now. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, his estrogen's probably around 40 your estrogen zero. And I'm like, I'm just trying to get you to 40. I'm just trying to get you to match his. You'll probably feel a lot better. And it, it's almost a way of like, okay, well, if that much estrogen is safe in his body, it's probably safe in my body, right? Yeah. Which again, we're catering to the male as the default, which rubs me the wrong way, but it works for some people. 
Yeah, no. And I think it also like I'm looking at my, you know, very athletic 50 ish husband, and we're starting to have these conversations about whether or not, you know, even at his age and stage that he may be in a position, even though he's he's insulin sensitive, and he exercises, but I was saying, you know, you're probably in conjunction with his urologist, he has a male urologist, who's great. And, you know, talking to him about testosterone replacement therapy. And so my teenagers, if you can imagine, because they don't understand all the complex physiology, they're like, can't we get more? I was like, you all have plenty. You both have grown really tall. You're in this massive, you know, anabolic phase. you got all these muscles. You're you know, like, your a level is- of 900 is enough, honey. Correct. And they're like, we just need more. And I'm like, no, you don't. And so having these conversations about it's different, you know, as you're getting older, it's like, it's kind of like the tires wear out on the car. You got to replace the tires to kind of get, you know, more longevity. I said, so, you know, sometimes people do benefit, including men uh, with some hormone replacement therapy. And I said, I think there should be no shame because they were asking a little like mom's on it. Why do you need to be on it? And I said, well, you know, if you're optimizing things, and that's what I think many of us are looking to do is optimization where you feel good, you sleep well, you have plenty of, uh, you know, energy, you know, you you have an interest in sex. I always say like, that's, you know, it's one thing when people will say, you know, I just had a baby, I'm exhausted. I don't want to think about sex. But when your kids are older, if you have no interest or desire, or you don't even think about sex anymore. And I have girlfriends that will say to me, I don't even think about sex. And it's not that they don't love their partner. And so helping to find that disconnect. And so when you're working with your patients and you're working with a couple and they're saying like, I love my partner. I want to desire my partner. There's just a disconnect. Where do you start from? Are you looking at hormones as a starting point? Are you talking to them more about, you know, connection and taking time for arousal? What are the things that you're usually working on? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very good point. And it's so hard in the, you know, traditional Western medical system of 15 minutes, fix my desire. (laughs) Right. And you're like, especially if I'm stereotyping, right? Men have low desire too. But like if a man brings a woman in and he's like, she's broken, fix her desire. And I'm like, well, you're the first problem, right? Like that's not sexy at all. But um, thank God I wrote a book and have a podcast now because I can't explain. Because again, going back to like how little sex ed we get, right? Like, are you involving the clitoris? How aroused are you before you put something in your vagina? How much are you guys prioritizing everybody's pleasure as equally important, right? Are you in marital counseling? Maybe this is your body saying, don't sleep with this person right now, right? Like there's so many different, is she doing more of a share of the household work than he is? Is there inequality in the relationship, right? Is she carrying more of the cognitive stress burden than he is? He's all relaxed and ready to have sex. She is not relaxed at all, right? And so like there's so much to that and desire in a sex life. It, again, biopsychosocial, right? But if they're like, we are great. The kids are out of the house. We are chill. I've just, it's just not how it used to be, blah, 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 blah. You're like, maybe it's a hormone thing. But I always say with hormones, I'm like, hormones can help. Sometimes hormones are where it's at, but it, hormones will not fix a lot of that biopsychosocial stuff. And so I, I never want somebody to be like, well, I tried the hormones and they didn't work. And so now I'm super broken, right? Like that's always my worry of like, there's a role, but you got to work on all this other stuff too. I'm not afraid of hormones at all. Yeah. Because I'm a urologist. We give them to men all the time for the quality of life. Do we tell men like, are you suffering enough? (laughs) Right? Like we ask women, are you suffering enough to get put on hormones? We never ask a man, are you suffering enough? We believe them when they tell us they're suffering. 
So more equality needs to happen with hormones for sure. I think that's really important. And it's, I think this is every female friend of mine I know is this way. We have the mental to-do list going in our brains all the time. Our brains are designed to be able to multitask. And so my husband always says, anytime, anywhere, doesn't matter what we're doing. He's like, whereas you're like, well, I have to have all these five things done first before I can. And I just said, I think it's because you, I just have this brain that's thinking about all the things. So to get focused on one thing requires a bit more effort. And I do believe fervently that if your partner is helping you out at home and my husband is the meal prep king, he's an engineer. I mean, I, I like how I said, I need some help in the kitchen and he is the meal prep guy. And we would otherwise not survive with two teenage boys because they eat everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. And so for me, it is so sexy to know that he's in there getting meal prep done so that we can at least get through four days of the week without running out of like protein and vegetables And I'm like, I appreciate that. And when you feel appreciated or you feel like someone's helping out, all of a sudden you have more bandwidth to even consider thinking about having sex as opposed to if you feel like you're the only person that is burdened with the household responsibilities, you're not going to have the bandwidth. I, I think most women would probably not feel like they had the bandwidth to be able to engage in anything pleasurable because they're like, I got one more thing I need to do. I'm going to check the box. And yeah. no one wants their relationship to be that way. Yeah. Well, and especially if sex becomes another checklist, right? Like my brain was blown by this article that came out a year ago. It's actually on my link on my Instagram because I just love it so much. It's called the heteronormative theory of low desire in women who are partnered with men. And Sari Sari Van Anders is her name. She's a researcher out of Canada. I read that article and it blew my freaking mind. I actually read the article as a podcast episode and then interviewed her as the next episode because I was like, women feel seen now like you literally described what all these women are saying of like he's ready and i still got all these things to do and i'm the object of desire not the person who gets to desire right and like all of these heteronormative socializations that really do affect your sex life it's an amazing paper i'll have to definitely check it out because i i do find the more you understand, the more you can share with others to help them kind of put those connections together. I would love to talk about what are some of the functions within the clitoris that impact sexual function and pleasure. And the reason why I think this is important is as an example, like how many women have carried pregnancies and have pelvic floor dysfunction. And because they have such significant pelvic floor dysfunction, it interestingly enough, Friends of mine that live in Europe, pelvic floor therapy is like automatic. You have a baby, you go to pelvic floor therapy here, unless you're having like, you know, horrific problems, you oftentimes, maybe you're doing it, but I'm saying most people are not getting referred to pelvic floor mm-hmm. therapy or some of the things that it can back lubrication, whether it's where you are in your cycle, time of life, et cetera, that I think might be of interest to help kind of prime the idea that time is of the essence, meaning, you know, you have to invest a little bit of time into warming yourself up so that you can then move on to whatever type of sex you're having, whether it's PIV or otherwise. Yeah. Well, I think the big myth of like, we're just light switches, right? And we go from this like sympathetically activated state of like parenting, job, commute, scheduling dinner, like go, 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 go. Right. And then we're like, do you want to have sex? You're like, no, I don't want to have sex. And, you know, the experts really talk about this like bridging behavior of like, if you want to prioritize sex in your life and you want to get there, but right now you're a hell no, like what are the behaviors that work for you to bridge you into the sexual 
experience, right? And whether that's connecting with a partner, relaxing, uh, arousing behavior, I'm going to go read some erotica or going to go, you know, use the vibrator on myself for a little bit, whatever you figure, and it's going to be different for everybody, right? Like yoga works awesome for me. And my husband's like, every time you do yoga at night, I know that it might be a good time, right? Because it just like <laughs> gets my nervous system totally into the parasympathetic, relax, accept, enjoy, Right. And so it's really to think of it as like a bridging behavior and figuring out what that is to really work for some people, I think can be a game changer because you're like, no, right now I am not interested in sex. And then you're like, I'm never interested in sex. And it's like, or maybe you didn't learn how to bridge to doing this activity that requires a different area of your brain, a different area of your body, right? Like different skills. And how do we get over to that land instead of thinking it's like a light switch where you just need to be on all the time? Oh, that's such a good analogy and one that I think many people can kind of relate to. To kind of wrap things up, I'd love to talk about what are some of the genitourinary changes you're seeing with women as they're making that perimenopause to menopause shift. And then I want to talk about your statement in the book about vaginal estrogen is like sunscreen or seatbelts, chapstick for the vulva and vagina, which I thought was hilarious. I love it. Yeah. So I mean, I see a lot of overactive bladder, getting up at night to urinate, which is called nocturia, urgency, frequency. But of course, I'm a urologist, right? So they're coming in for that. They're coming in for that. They're staying for the hormones. But um, decreased you know, moisture, lubrication. I always tell people, I'm like, do you remember your 23-year-old vagina? It was crazy town down there. Like, <laughs> it's a self-cleaning oven. But we forget, you know, we forget how naturally lubricated those tissues are with sufficient amounts of estrogen. And, you know, for people who are like, oh, what is vaginal dryness that big of a deal? It's like, have you ever had dry eyes? Have you ever had a dry mouth where like your tongue sticking to the like, it's very uncomfortable. Let's not dismiss these symptoms. Right. And so I see a lot of that pain with sex. I see a lot of people who are like, well, I stopped having sex seven years ago because it started to hurt and not ever figuring that out. Right. And I'm like, it's so fixable. And then, you know, going into the seatbelt thing, because people are so entitled to like not having to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. People are like, I don't want to have to use vaginal estrogen. Bleh. You know, <laughs> they, they throw a fit over it. And I'm like, do you floss? Oh, yeah, I floss. OK, well, flossing isn't natural. Do you wear a seatbelt? <laughs> they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, it's easier to get in the car and not use a seatbelt. It's an extra step every single time you get in the car. Like, it's so annoying. You know, and I just start like pointing out these things that are just like habits in our life that we do because we want to be healthy and safe. And you know, do you brush your teeth? And, you know, my joke finally is like, I have a water pick and an electric toothbrush. I'm like, I have two vibrators for my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so because you're like, I don't want to use a vibrator for sex because that's unnatural. And I'm like, I have a water pick. I recharge this thing that like pounds water between my teeth because I'm so much better for having good oral hygiene. So I just like to demystify this. Like, I don't want to have to do this. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? You know, we do things to take care of ourselves. Let's be glad we're living this long. Well, and it's finding that reframe. So for every, you know, negative thing they're saying, it's like find the reframe of, okay, let's think about this differently so that we understand what we're actually doing is X. We're protecting our lives. We're protecting our teeth. We're being proactive so we don't end up developing urinary tract infections. And I, what's interesting to me is how many women that I reflect back on probably 50s, 60s, 70s that I saw in cardiology 
there were on multiple antibiotics. Like they were, they had an allergy to every antibiotic known to man because by that point they had chronic recurring UTIs, you know, around the clock. They got up two or three times a night. And of course, in cardiology, we're thinking, oh, is it because they're in a little bit of heart failure? And now understanding like, no, it's actually this loss of estrogen, which is contributing to all these other issues. And so where is the, you know, for you personally, when, you know, women come in and they're having issues with like fissures and friability, maybe they're having a lot of puritis because of like tissue paper or toilet paper, how quickly do you feel like they will get resolution in the average person if they start using vaginal estrogen? So, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, this all sounds very familiar, I would imagine that the reconstitution of those tissues would happen fairly quickly, that you would get resolution of symptoms pretty quickly. And yes, it involves putting something in your vagina, but if you're not using compounded estrogen that you're using transdermally or patches, et cetera, this might be a good like starting point for Mm -hmm. gateway to HRT. Yeah. The, so the answer is about six to eight weeks and starting to see things improve. But you know, I'll see women back in two weeks sometimes and they'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm better already. Like It's amazing how fast the change can be. And that's just like a total win because it's people love instantaneous, right? Like, I don't know if it's better or not of like, yeah. And I tell people, I'm like, listen, the only person who never gets a urinary tract infection is a dead person. Like we're humans <laughs> and we can get infections. <laughs> Right. But we really want to space it out. And we know just taking antibiotics messes with your microflora and puts you up at a risk to get another UTI just because you took an antibiotic. Right. You killed all your helpers. And I'm like, well, did you know there's a drug that decreases the risk of a UTI, recurring UTI by 60 percent? They're like, no, I didn't know that. And I'm like, yeah, let's get you on that. We put it in your vagina. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, just to share the data with them and Another amazing statistic is vaginal estrogen is basically equivalent to anticholinergics as far as controlling overactive bladder. It's like, why is not restoring function the number one option over drugging function? You know, anticholinergics are horrifically full of side effects. They're cheap, but they've got tons of side effects. So much so that they're, you know, by the beers criteria, not recommended in people over the age of 65. So, to me, I'm like, why wouldn't you restore? Why isn't that part of the overactive bladder paradigm, you know, in urology? I don't know. Because these studies are published in the menopause journal, not the urology journal. But I mean, these medications work very well. And I think it's really important for people to understand. So if you're suffering with chronic UTIs, or you've got overactive bladder, or you're getting up, you know, multiple times a night to sleep. I mean, you know, I always start with, you know, cut down on your fluids after six o'clock and then trying to figure this out. And it's amazing to me when women come through programs, I can tell without question, without even looking through their entire intake, who's on HRT and who is not just based on how well they are doing in terms of like energy and sleep quality and, you know, sleeping through the night, which, you know, you don't realize how wonderful a blessing it is to sleep through the night until you don't sleep through the night. And then you're like, okay, my whole perception of the world has changed now. This has been an invaluable conversation. I would love to have you back on the podcast again. Please let my listeners know how to watch your TED Talk, how to purchase your book, or listen to your amazing podcast on iTunes. Absolutely. So the TED Talk is called Why Adults Need Sex Ed. If you just Google TEDx Casperson, it pops up. It pops up for me when I just Google that. The website's kellycaspersonmd.com. 
podcast is You Are Not Broken and the book you can get on Amazon also called You Are Not Broken. Stop shooting all over your sex life. I love it. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.